Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. Coming to you live from London, I'm James Kamarasamy. The list of countries with the highest number of coronavirus infections changed today, with India leapfrogging Russia to record the third highest number of cases overall in the world after the United States and Brazil. But we're going to begin the programme not by considering where the disease is being transmitted, but by considering how, because more than 200 scientists from 32 countries are urging the World Health Organisation to revise its advice on how to stop infections. They argue in a letter that the WHO is underplaying the airborne transmission of the virus, that is, the transmission through smaller droplets which linger in the air as opposed to the bigger ones expelled by coughs and sneezes. As we're about to hear, that could have implications for the use of face masks, social distancing and much more. Professor Mario Molina is a Nobel Prize-winning Mexican chemist who supports the scientist's letter. He published a paper last month entitled Identifying Airborne Transmission as the Dominant Route for the Spread of COVID-19. And he told me his understanding of how the virus is transmitted. It is transmitted to a significant extent by these uh, very small particles that we call aerosols. These are the particles that float in contrast to the larger drops that you emit when you cough or you sneeze. The small particles, the aerosols are emitted when you talk and they can be infected. And we're looking at the, the data reported of cases and so on. It's very clear that when governments implement the measure of uh, using a face mask, that we see a very clear change uh, downwards in, in the number of uh, people that, are, that get infected. So just to be clear, the face masks, they protect you against these aerosols, these particles that are lingering in the air, do you? Because generally, it has been said that the importance of the face masks is to protect other people, that it's you who are expelling the droplets which might be infectious yeah we disagree with that what we think is that it's even much more important for the face mask is to prevent you from breathing these uh, small particles whereas the who and so on the original idea was that you use face masks only so that you don't emit large droplets And there are several other indications people getting infected when they are in a closed room, such as when they are singing or they are doing gymnastics or whatever. It's clear that infections propagate that way. And that cannot happen with the large droplets. That's happening with the aerosols. Why do you think the WHO has been so reluctant to recognise that airborne transmission could be the main pathway? We are not sure. We're part of the community that deals with aerosols. We thought we should communicate. It should be two scientific groups that can certainly work with each other. What appears to be the case, according to some thoughts, is that the coronavirus is handled by a certain epidemiologists, epidemiologists that deal with virus. The epidemiologists were very close-minded. They didn't want to pay much attention to scientific findings or articles that did not have one of them as a co-author. That's what appears to be the case. 
So, so you're yeah, saying that, that social distance in itself is not enough, that staying, staying two metres more even apart would in itself not be sufficient to really get a grip on the pandemic. That's correct. And the one way to explain it is these particles behave a little bit like smoke from cigarettes. And that can, if you are in a closed room and there is not very good ventilation, the smoke can reach from one corner to another and it can stay there for many tens of minutes, if not hours. So the implication is not just that we should wear masks, but that businesses, restaurants need to really perhaps rethink their ventilation, rethink how how the air circulates through the building. That's right. Which has implications for costs, etc., doesn't it? That's right. But this is also an old story because air pollution also causes harm because these small particles, when you breathe, they get directly into your lungs, okay? So there are a number of studies before the the COVID-19 that suggest that uh, what you need to have good ventilations, particularly if you live in a polluted city. So you need some ventilation and it doesn't have to be very expensive. Nobel laureate Mario Molina from the University of California, San Diego. We'll be hearing about the uh, coronavirus situation in his native Mexico a bit later. Austrian police have arrested two Russian citizens from Chechnya for the killing of a Chechen dissident near Vienna on Saturday. The victim, who was shot dead in a shopping centre, is thought to be Mamikhan Umarov, a critic of Chechnya's strongman leader Ramzan Kadyrov, an ally of President Putin. He's the latest in a growing list of Chechen exiles to be attacked and in many cases killed in European countries in recent months and years. Ahmed Zakayev is a Chechen exile who lives in the UK. Did he know Mamikhan Umarov? No, I didn't know Marov personally, but I knew that he was a very strong critic of Russia and of those who support Russia in Chechnya. What do you think led to his death? Is it that criticism? I've got no doubt that this was just another political assassination carried out in a foreign country by Russia's security services. It's another link in the chain which goes back to the murder in 2006 of Alexander Litvinenko in England. I want to remind your listeners why I'm referring to this period. At that time, Putin signed two laws in Russia. The first one meant that any person criticising Russia or its policies, it didn't matter whether it was a journalist, a politician, an ordinary citizen, were on the same level as an extremist, a terrorist, and they were designated an enemy of the Russian state. The second law allowed, called on, no, ordered Russia's security services to liquidate enemies of the Russian state, no matter where they were, on Russian territory or abroad. And in principle, from that time, Russia openly began to pursue its political opponents anywhere in the world. So you're saying that people who have criticised the Chechen leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, that makes no difference. They are They are seen as enemies of Russia, even if... They are specifically uh, uh, criticizing Kadyrov. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. It's not a There's no difference whether they're criticizing Kadyrov or Putin. If they're criticizing Kadyrov, it amounts to criticizing Putin, his creator. Chechnya is occupied territory, occupied by Putin, and Putin is personally responsible for everything that happens in Chechnya. So I don't draw a distinction between Russian politicians and journalists who suffer because of this law and are liquidated, and those who criticize Putin and Kadyrov together. They're one and the same thing. 
What about you? You've been here for some time now in the UK. You were given political asylum 17 years ago. Do you feel safe in England? You know, not a single person who opposes Putin can feel safe wherever they are. And of course, I'm a target of the Russian security services because I fall into the category of enemy of the Russian state. And everyone who criticises Russia, no matter what their nationality is, finds themselves at risk. I've absolutely no doubt of that. Do you think European countries as a whole take the threat seriously enough? Absolutely. I'm sure they do, because throughout the EU there are Russian exiles who've been given political asylum from the current regime, and all of these people are viewed by Russia and the Russian security services as enemies of the Russian state. So all these countries where they're living risk being dragged into this work of the Russian agencies of killing Putin's political opponents. Chechen exile Ahmed Zakayev. Well, Luke Harding is a foreign correspondent for the Guardian newspaper. He was based in Moscow before being expelled. He's also the author of several books about Russia, including the recently published Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West. What does he make of this latest killing? It's pretty clear that this is another state hit. This isn't a one-off. We, we've seen about 10 of these cases and it fits with a pattern, a historical pattern of, of the Soviet state uh, wiping out enemies in foreign countries, which which happened really throughout the kind of Cold War period, but also subsequently uh, a revival of kind of murder as a, as a tactic under Vladimir Putin over the last two decades, sometimes against Russian domestic critics like um, Anna Politkovskaya, the journalist, or Alexander Litvinenko, who was famously killed with a radioactive cup of tea in 2006. But we've also seen a string of Chechen exiles critics of, of President Ramzan Kadyrov being murdered in, in Berlin last August, in Austria most recently, but also in Istanbul and even in, in Dubai. It's clear, to me at least, that the trail goes all the way back to Chechnya, Chechnya and Grozny, where Kadyrov is based, and also to Moscow. We've just heard long-time Chechen exile here in the UK, Ahmed Zakayev, essentially saying there is no difference, that this is all of a piece Chechen, Russian, it doesn't matter. It all goes back to Putin. I mean, you're, you're saying that as well, I think. But but is there something special about the Chechens who are killed? Is there something different that you, you might single out? You have to examine Ramzan Kadyrov's rule. I mean, I mean, he, he was put there by Putin. I mean, I've been to Chechnya um, as a reporter a couple of times. It, it has a distinctly Stalinist vibe. It's very repressive. There's been an underreported war that's been going on for some years between federal and local security forces, Kadyrov's people, and Islamists. It's overwhelmingly feudal, and a large number of, of Chechens have, have fled to Europe and elsewhere. There's a big diaspora there. And what we see are prominent critics of the Kadyrov regime being literally gunned down in, in the streets. It's a depressing phenomenon, but what we also know is that this isn't just a kind of intra-Chechen feud. The resources of the Russian state are involved. So it's this, this murky nexus between Chechen sort of revenge, if you like, and Russia's sort of formidable espionage um, operation. And what are European countries doing about it? The difficulty is the West sort of tends to respond in conventional measures. It kicks out Russian spies attached to embassies. And actually, I, I think Putin doesn't greatly care about this. Really, I think a kind of smarter response is needed, perhaps 
going after the assets, the, the secret bank accounts of Putin and the people around him might be more effective than just kicking out diplomats. Is, is part of the problem that there is no direct proof linking the, the killings to those at the very top, that, that sometimes there are groups who act based on what they presume those at the top would like to have happen, but actually the fingerprints are not directly on those at the top? That, that's a fascinating question. If, if you go back to, to Stalin, when he told his then uh, spy chief, someone called Pavel Sudoplatov, to kill Trotsky, he used rather um, ambiguous bureaucratic language. He didn't say kill Trotsky. He said, you understand the political importance of your mission. And I, I think when, if and when Putin leaves power, there will not be a kind of extensive documentary trail. But at the same time, everybody who knows the way that Russian power operates um, is exercised, understands that for, for big operations that affect Russia's international reputation, there's only one man who can authorise that. The, the evidence is circumstantial, but I, I think it, it's pretty broadly understood that these kind of misadventures could only happen with the approval of the Russian president. And that was Luke Harding. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. Coming up. Amazing <laughs> grace. How sweet. President Obama made an audacious choice at the funeral of Reverend Pinckney, one of the nine people murdered in an attack on a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. A choice that connected with a suffering congregation. Our latest report on US race relations examining the legacy of the Obama era comes up in about half an hour's time. Our headlines at this hour, India now has more coronavirus cases in Russia, making it the third worst hit nation after the United States and Brazil. And Kazakhstan has become the first country to bring back nationwide quarantine measures. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC World Service. Let's get more on the pandemic now and hear from a Latin American country which has just passed 30,000 COVID-19 deaths. Mexico now has the fifth highest number of fatalities, fatalities in the world, putting it ahead of France. Alejandro Macias is a medical doctor who served as Mexico's influenza pandemic czar back in 2009. So how bad does he think the situation is in his country? The situation is very bad right now. It feels like uh, we are very much in the epicenter of this pandemic in the world. And not enough is being done. What should be being done? The government should be doing more tests. We are not doing enough tests from the very beginning of this pandemic. This could be like the original scene of the Mexico's response. Even if you compare against other countries in the world, we are in the same level of testing of countries like Uganda or Senegal, but we have substantially more resources, uh, economical and technical, to do much more than that. Face masks are not a culture 
in Mexico, as they are in some countries like China or Japan. We have to increase that culture because the evidence is clear. We have to wear more masks. Now that some cities are reopening, they are reopening in the worst of times. And what about social distancing? What about people self-isolating if they test positive? Well, not really. The few people that are being tested they are sent home in conditions that they cannot isolate. They just go there to infect other members of their family. Why have things gone so badly wrong in Mexico, do you think? From the beginning, the evidences were that testing, tracing, tracking of people, isolation, quarantine should be the way to go. We didn't do it. I think that we went more like for wishful thinking, that uh, this illusion that if we just wait a little, and maybe a little of the warm weather, uh, we will be doing well. Back in 2009, you were the influenza pandemic czar. Were, were plans in place? Should there have been a better prepared government in Mexico for this one? Well, I think so. The response of the Mexican government is not being adequate. The Mexican government needs to increase resources to allocate more resources for testing, for public health campaigns also, for even for education. Mexico has a younger population than, than many of the countries in Europe, the United States, for example, and, and that one would have expected to lead to fewer deaths. Are there other factors feeding into this large number of deaths in Mexico? Of course, the, the comorbidities. We have young, a younger population but we have more comorbidities. We have more overweight. We have more chronic infections, more chronic diseases, non-controlled hypertension. And I think that's also feeding this pandemic. And we are not doing enough uh, to uh, control that, that problem. We have to admit that it's a, it's a chronic problem. It's not, it's not something new that it's, belongs only to the responsibility of this government. But still now, we have, we have to be doing more about that. We are not really being moved by evidence. And that's very worrisome. And now, which is really worrisome, is that uh, the use of face masks is being politicized. The president of the republic is not wearing a mask. That marks our government is not going by evidence. To me, that's very concerning. Dr. Alejandro Macias, Mexico's former influenza pandemic czar. The BBC has had rare access to Libya just weeks after the internationally recognised authority, the Government of National Accord, or GNA, claimed full control over the capital Tripoli. It repulsed an offensive by the renegade general Khalifa Haftar, thanks to extensive support from Turkey. Libya's conflict is increasingly a regional proxy war, with Turkey and Qatar supporting the UN-backed government. France, Egypt and Russia support General Haftar, who still controls Libya's main oil fields. From Tripoli, our international correspondent Ola Girin reports. We've just touched down in Tripoli. The red carpet was waiting and there was a brass band to welcome Turkey's defence minister. The landscape has changed here. Now the UN-backed government, the government of national accord, has been able to strengthen its position to push back forces that were trying to take the city. And that's thanks to military support from Turkey. This was the sound of victory last month. 
when fighters loyal to the UN-backed government claimed full control of Tripoli. It wouldn't have happened without Ankara's help. It provided air defence systems, drone technology and fighters from Syria. Turkey's presence here is part of an expanded footprint across the Middle East. Ankara wants to be a key player in the future, whatever emerges from the chaos in Libya. And it's flexing its muscles across the Middle East. But is Turkey planning a permanent stay on Iraqi soil? I put that question to the Defence Minister, Halusi Akkar. Saying that would be incorrect. Our presence here is based on bilateral agreements with the legitimate Libyan government, recognized by the UN, and this is in line with international law. Our presence will continue. We are trying to help our Libyan brothers by consulting on military training and cooperation. Turkish military forces are now active here in Libya, in northern Syria and in northern Iraq. And that's making some in the region nervous. They accuse Turkey of military adventurism, of interventionism. Where do Turkey's ambitions end? The main goal is to protect the rights and interests of our 83 million people to provide for their security and maintain the security of our borders. When you take a closer look at our operations, they all have this goal. We also want to help our brother countries as much as we can. Well, we've just arrived now at a hospital Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Our temperatures have been checked and we've been given masks and disinfectant for our hands. In January, Turkish doctors and surgeons moved in here. They took over and renovated and improved the facilities. There are about 50 Turkish medical staff here now. And this is part of Turkey's growing presence here. There's soft power as well as hard power. And you can see here plenty of signs, plenty of evidence of the conflict. The building is pockmarked. There are sandbags on the balconies. And here below at the entrance, there are huge fortifications to stop a vehicle-borne suicide attack. Can I ask what kind of surgery are you doing here? War surgeon. I am a war surgeon. We are a war surgeon. The doctor, who didn't want to give his name told me he and his colleagues have operated even as the hospital was under fire. Asked why they are in Libya now, he harked back to the Ottoman era. Our state gives us a duty, he says, and we do it. If you look at the history of this land, it is our brothers who live here. Back in time, there were Turks living here. Soon, the defence minister's flying visit was at an end. Some in the region accuse Turkey of neo-Ottoman ambitions, a claim Ankara denies. But it is now playing a central role in Libya's tangled conflict. Now, Zola Girin reporting from Libya. You're listening to NewsHour.
Large parts of England's hospitality sector reopened on Saturday, but pubs and restaurants remained firmly closed in one city in the Midlands. Leicester is back in a partial lockdown, the first local restriction of its kind in England, because of a recent rise in the number of coronavirus cases. It's a spike that's been blamed on conditions inside the city's garment factories. Dominic Muller is a policy director with Labour Behind the Label, a UK campaign group that has investigated the conditions at these factories. What we found was that workers reported being pressurised into work even when they were feeling sick or when they wanted to isolate or shield vulnerable workers. Workers were denied proper furlough pay or denied wages and were told to, you know, either come into work or basically lose their jobs. So economic pressure to continue working even if they felt ill or were worried about being there and, and once they were inside the factories, no possibility of social distancing, for example. Exactly. I mean, many of these factories are very small. They're in often run-down buildings, very little ventilation. What we found increasingly is that the windows are blocked up so people can't see what's going on, which which really means there's a stuffy environment. The workers are stuck there for the whole of their shift. There's no way that those factories can do social distancing. And what we've also heard is that the factories are operating pretty much at 100% capacity, if not more. So there's been a big boom in orders, there will be the usual amount of workers in there rather than a much lesser amount in order to social distance. Now, there's one particular brand, isn't there, I think, that that you've investigated that, that has done well during the pandemic because of online sales. Just tell us about Boohoo and how they fit into this. Yes, well, Boohoo is pretty much the largest buyer in Leicester, and they've really seen their profits soar in the last few months uh, as they've been able to keep on operating, unlike a lot of the bricks and mortar stores. So we've heard of a lot of more orders, increased production, pressure to finish orders very quickly, which means that factories are operating at 110%. And and with Boohoo, I mean, Boohoo have been in the news many times with a over issues around their purchasing practices. So ordering very small amounts, but very quick turnaround. So very much a fast fashion model. And their pricing is such that suppliers, you know, often they can't afford with the prices that they have been given to pay a decent wage. The suppliers need the work. They take the orders. The workers need the work. They go to work. It's a sort of a vicious circle. And and you've put your findings to Boohoo, have you? What, What have they said? We actually sent the report to them shortly before publication and I haven't had a response. I've seen their statements in various news medias and I've seen it on their website. On the one hand, Boohoo have said that our report is inaccurate. On the other, they have said that they will investigate the claims. And I think really the next question is how are they going to investigate? I mean, they say that they have been auditing. They say they have been going into factories. But, you know, I'm not sure whether this has been happening all along or whether this has really just started. Dominique Muller of the campaign group Labour Behind the Label. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. It's just over a year since Ukrainians elected a politically inexperienced comedian Volodymyr Zelensky to be their president by a landslide. He promised change, primarily an end to corruption and to the fighting with Russian-backed separatists in the eastern Donbass region. But despite some early successes, things have not panned out as many, both inside and outside Ukraine, had hoped. 
Mr Zelensky was dragged into the scandal that led to President Trump's impeachment. The war in the East drags on. And in recent months, he has replaced many of the reform-minded officials that he brought into power with him. And now, the man he beat in last year's election, Petro Poroshenko, is accusing his successor of waging a battle against him in the courts out of a desire for revenge. Mr Poroshenko also says there are pro-Russian sympathisers among the current president's advisers. He's been speaking to our Kiev correspondent, Jonah Fisher. Just over a year ago, Petro Poroshenko was Ukraine's president, leading his country's fight against Russian-backed rebels. This week, he was marching with his supporters through central Kiev to court, and he could be on his way to jail. Since leaving office, Mr Poroshenko has faced a barrage of investigations. His now regular court appearances have turned into rallies. This script was written in the Kremlin, he tells his supporters. Petro Poroshenko's message is that this is a politically motivated prosecution backed by the man who defeated him in last year's presidential election, the former comedian Vladimir Zelensky. This is a revenge. This is a revenge of unexperienced politicians. I met up with Mr Poroshenko at the headquarters of his political party, European Solidarity. I asked him if he now regretted the deeply personal nature of last year's election campaign, and in particular his campaign posters that suggested that a vote for Mr Zelensky was effectively a vote for Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. I was one of the most happiest person in the world if I was wrong. But unfortunately, this is true. The fifth column of Russian Federation are now playing a very important role in Ukraine. What you're saying is extremely damning, potentially destabilizing for this country to say that Ukraine's president is effectively Putin's man. I'm not saying that the Ukrainian president is a Putin man. Never. I'm saying that he is quite unexperienced. And his team, who is consist of one of the persons who was in uh, Russia five years, uh, all five years of my presidency, definitely play a very negative role. The irony is that Mr Poroshenko had five years in charge and could have tried much harder to reform the rotten justice system that now pursues him. Instead, he must contend with more than 20 investigations on subjects varying from the legality of his appointments to the tax status of his paintings. Mikhailo Zhenikov is a campaigner for judicial reform and no fan of Mr Poroshenko. So there's definitely things that should be investigated about Poroshenko, I believe, and, and the experts believe, but the charges that are now pressed against him are just ridiculous. There's no grounds, there's no evidence. There's clearly political persecution going on and not a clear and an objective investigation. News of Mr Poroshenko's predicament hasn't gone down well across Europe. The last few weeks have seen pointed statements of concern being made by Ukraine's friends. So far, President Zelensky, supposedly a reformer, has discovered a newfound confidence in the integrity of Ukrainian justice. Denis Smigal 
is his prime minister. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, agreed with you that it looks not so good, but I'm sure that every person who uh, made uh, something bad, who violated the law, uh, should be uh, responsible for this. And uh, I'm not happy that it happens in Ukraine, but I'm sure that... Uh, responsibility should be in any case in any way for any person by encouraging the pursuit of his predecessor president zelensky is taking a gamble a few months ago a defeated petro poroshenko was in the political wilderness now he's back and center stage jonah fisher reporting from kiev If Ukraine may be facing new political turbulence, Russia appears set for another 16 years of stability, at least when it comes to its leader. Officially, 78% of Russians have just backed more than 200 changes to the country's constitution in a week-long referendum, nudged in that direction by a concerted yes campaign from the Kremlin. Of those changes, most of the focus has been on the one that resets the presidential timetable, allowing Vladimir Putin to remain in office until 2036, should he wish to. We'll discuss that in just a moment. First, let's hear from a supporter of the changes. She's in Crimea, the peninsula that Russia annexed from Ukraine six years ago after an internationally unrecognised referendum. Tatiana Zizak is a tour guide in Sevastopol. So why does she vote in favour of the changes? Personally, for me, the most important changes were the introduction of the existence of God, also to stress the family values, Also, it was very important to protect the border of the Russian Federation, as it is now. So, in other words, the kind of conservative values that you espouse, you felt it was important that they were written into the Russian constitution? Yeah, we think, all of us think so. It's very important for us to follow our heritage and to stick to family values. So those values are important to you. And also you talked about the borders. In other words, Crimea, where you are living and have lived, you are keen that it remains part of Russia. Yeah, uh, it became a part of Russia in 1783. And since that time, it has always been a part of Russia, except the short period after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. What about the question of President Putin himself and how long he can remain in office? These changes allow him to to stay until 2036. Was that important to you? <laughs> so it's very good that you say he can stay, but it doesn't mean that he must stay or he will stay. Do you agree with me? I, I, I agree. It, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's his decision, yeah, I, I guess, why. now whether to stand or not. But the, the reforms do give him that possibility. Was that important for you that he has that possibility? Yeah, I think it's very good because we believe him and we see him as a strong politician who stands for Russian interests. And he has very high ratings in our country. But he's so unpredictable that there may be another 
shake up in the whole world. Who knows what he is going to do next? Ah, so you you don't necessarily think that he will make use of this new ability he has to remain in power? Yeah, yeah. I remember when the term of presidency is coming to an end. In English, it is called the lame duck. Am I right? You are right. Yeah, that's why Putin now stands in his very strong positions, because everyone believes he will be the president in Russia. Tatiana Zizak, tour guide from Sevastopol in Crimea. Well, I've been discussing the implications of this referendum with Mark Galliotti, Professor of Russian Politics at University College London. What does he think about the idea that President Putin has been trying to avoid becoming a lame duck? Absolutely. And if you just roll back to a year ago, um, this was the consuming passion of the Moscow political and chattering classes. Everyone was talking exactly about this whole issue of 2024 when his current term ends. And he's made it very clear that uh, he absolutely regarded this as a distraction and he wants people to get back to work. This is about giving Putin options as much as anything else. Putin is not the kind of person who creates long-term complex plans and feels absolutely locked to them. He basically likes to create opportunities for himself so that in a year, in two years, in four years' time, he can make the relevant decision then. And on the face of it, what he's managed to do then with this referendum would appear to put him in a position of strength. You've written a column in The Spectator magazine saying Putin's referendum rigging is a sign of weakness. Tell us about your conclusions. Well, again, I think it's because of how things have changed this year. I mean, if you, again, if you look at the beginning of this year when they actually planned this vote, there was going to be the big internationally regarded celebrations of the end of World War II. There was meant to be Xi Jinping and Macron there. And then there was going to be this vote and there was no question but that uh, the majority of the population would back it. So it would be more or less a, a plebiscitary coronation. Then, of course, coronavirus came through. And I think that they decided, frankly, they were spooked. They decided to push the vote back, but only by a little bit of time, because it became clear that actually Russia is probably in for a long and possibly quite uh, nasty struggle with the virus. And so in order to get the vote he wanted, they had to, yes, use vast amounts of propaganda, but also when it comes down to it, rig it. I mean, there's some preliminary statistical modelling suggests that this was even more rigged than the last presidential election. And people are noticing that. And so in order to get his vote... He's had to, in a way, break the unwritten rules of the Russian system, been too blatant in essentially manipulating the result. What is the impact of that, though? Does it help the opposition? Problem is, there is no real opposition. There, there are the sort of the, the fake political parties, and then there are various different individuals out in the margins. I think more than anything else, this is not going to bring Putin down. This is not going to bring mobs out onto the streets or anything like that. It is about the slow decline in legitimacy of the system. In some ways, this is a little bit, and it's a very, very broad parallel, a little bit like what happened to the Soviet Union in the later 70s. That sense of things grinding down, that in fact the leadership is no longer really in charge. Putin's own approval ratings are steadily falling, still at levels that most Western politicians would happily gnaw their own arm off. But nonetheless, by the standards of the kind of stratospheric ratings that Putin had enjoyed, low. And more to the point, the trend is that. So I think this is this, is this sense that actually we are in what we might think of as late Putinism. Stag- stagnant stagnant Putinism, then, if you're Absolutely. drawing the parallels. Absolutely, yeah, quite. Again, 
we shouldn't assume that uh, history is in any way a predictor. But nonetheless, I think there is this growing sense, even within the elite, that actually Putin today is not the Putin of 20 years ago, and the needs of today are not the same as the needs of 20 years ago. That was Professor Mark Galliotti there with his analysis of uh, the results of that constitutional referendum in Russia. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. This is the BBC World Service, where Joe Pascal's in Harlem, New York. Harlem, it's a dynamic and changing neighbourhood. It has seen cultural booms. It's something magical to live in a neighbourhood where you know that Maya Angelou did a lot of her work. James Baldwin wrote all of his most important work. An explosion of music. Elephant's Girl and James Brown, the Jacksons, the list is endless. The cream of African-American society, of musical culture. Literature, the arts. I am from Harlem. I say it every chance I get. I love the sound of that name playing beats on my eardrums. I love the way it rolls off my lips. Harlem, that's my hood. Paying homage to Harlem through music, food and poetry. New York Stories with Joe Pascal. At bbcworldservice.com. A reminder of our top story this hour. In an open letter due to be published this week, a group of scientists call for greater acknowledgement of the role of airborne spread of COVID-19. Nobel laureate Mario Molina, who endorses the letter, told NewsHour he believes that aerosols play a significant role in the transmission of the virus. These are the particles that float in contrast to the larger drops that you emit when you cough or you sneeze. The small particles, the aerosols, are emitted when you talk. And if you are in a closed room and there is not very good ventilation, these particles can reach from one corner to another and it can stay there for many tens of minutes, if not hours. One other headline, India now has more coronavirus cases than Russia, making it the third worst hit nation after the United States and Brazil. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Kanye West, the rap star who used to be President Trump's most prominent black celebrity supporter, now says he wants to challenge him in November's election. We shall see. Mr Trump says he has done more for America's black community than any president since Lincoln, even if opinion polls suggest that African Americans aren't rushing to support him. They did, by contrast, largely vote for Mr Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama. And in his third report on US race relations, our former North America editor Mark Mardell now considers what a couple of significant moments during the Obama presidency tell us now about hate and fear. Amazing grace, how sweet. President Obama made an audacious choice at the funeral of Reverend Pinckney, one of the nine people murdered in an attack on a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. A choice that connected with a suffering congregation. On the day of the massacre, Reverend Pinckney's wife, Jennifer, was in the church building, but away from her husband, in his office, looking after their little daughter. 
six years old, very rambunctious. She wasn't going to sit quiet, wasn't going to be still. That's why I was in the office with her. Had Milana not been with us that evening, I wouldn't be speaking to you right now. I would have been sitting beside my husband in that Bible study. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Please, Emmanuel Churches, plenty of people shot down here. Please send somebody right away. What is your name, ma'am? Polly Shepherd. Among those who were in that Bible study group, Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white man who hated black people, who wrote they were taking over the world, stupid and violent. The real world was no match for his prejudice. After his arrest, he said everyone was so nice to him, he nearly didn't carry out the attack. He said he wanted to start a new civil war, a race war. Where is the shooter? He's in the, in the office. My blood ran cold when he tried to open the door, and it was locked. I just knew we were goners. Felicia Sanders, who was one of the other survivors, I heard her say, they're all gone. Even though I heard her say it, I didn't want to believe it. Dylan Roof was not the first white supremacist to target black churches. In 1962, five churches in the South were burnt or bombed. In 1963, a single attack injured 22. Dynamite exploded on a Sunday morning, killed four little girls in Sunday school. In 1995 and 6, 30 churches were burnt. 20 years ago, two members of the KKK burned down the original Mount Zion AME. It didn't stop with the Charleston attack. I mean, are we going backwards? We have to work with white clergy and beg them to begin to speak up. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history, but he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act, an act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. God has different ideas. The concept of grace is why the president sang that hymn. Valerie Jarrett is a close friend and was a senior White House advisor. She was with him when he heard some of the victims' families had, almost immediately, forgiven the killer. We were traveling when he heard that, and President Obama stopped, and he's like, what grace? So soon after your loved ones are murdered so viciously, and what grace it was, amazing grace, for these families to be so forgiving. And so that's what got him thinking about... Maybe this was an opportunity to educate people about the black church and how notwithstanding the history of being attacked and bombed, that the door is always open to a stranger and the kind of core decency of the black community, that it could continue to be welcoming, given that in so doing, you know you're at risk. And then that you could forgive somebody who sat through a Bible study for over an hour with your loved one. So it wasn't like a, you know... A drive-by where you don't look into the eyes and hearts of the people. He, he quite intentionally, after spending time with them, murdered them. And yet you have the, the grace to forgive. It, well, first it was shocking because I wasn't expecting, you know, president to sing. Um, but it, it was very touching. It was very fitting. Everyone was surprised, shocked, yet happy. But to forgive is not to forget. President Obama called out a nation. That flag was a reminder of systemic oppression and racial subjugation. By taking down that flag, we express God's grace. President Obama didn't stop there. 
he went on to say, and look, it's not enough just to take down the Confederate flag. He said, well, what are you doing about your schools? What are you doing about the tension between police and communities of color? The murderer, Dylan Roof, is now on death row. It was said at his trial he was self-radicalized. The roots of that radicalism are startling and go back to 2012, three years before the massacre. Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager, was shot down by a white neighborhood watchman who claimed self-defense. Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in Florida by George Zimmerman, a vigilante who thought the teenager was suspicious. Although there was said to be some altercation, there was no serious suggestion Trayvon, unarmed, holding only a soft drink and a bag of sweets, was doing anything wrong beyond taking a shortcut. But the police originally said there wasn't enough evidence to charge his killer, who'd claimed self-defence. Trayvon hadn't been involved in any crime, but it was news coverage of the case which radicalised Dylan Roof. Bet you money. If he didn't have that hoodie on, that nutty neighborhood watch guy wouldn't have responded in that violent and aggressive... As more protests sprouted up across the country, spontaneously, rallying for justice, calling for his arrest, and the Black Panthers offering a $10,000 bounty for his capture. He wrote in a manifesto, Trayvon's killer was in the right. When I think about this boy, I think about my own kids. And, you know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. It was totally his idea. He said it to me in the Oval Office a few minutes before he went out to an unrelated press conference. He was extremely upset that a young man walking through the neighborhood, eating Skittles, minding his own business, would end up dead. And it conjures up all of the anxiety that exists within the African-American community about how hard it is to keep our children safe. A few days later, the president returned to his theme trying to explain to the whole of America what it felt like to provoke fear just because of the colour of your skin. There are very few African-American men in this country who haven't had the experience of being followed when they were shopping in a department store. That includes me. The following year, 2013, Trayvon's killer, George Zimmerman, was charged, tried and acquitted on all charges. It was then that Black Lives Matter became first a hashtag, then an organisation. Change is what's happening in America. The time the United States elected its first black president seems almost distant now, even as the concerns he highlighted are for many even more urgent. That report by Mark Mardell brings us to an end of this edition of News Hour. From me, James Kamara, Sami and the team, goodbye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.